Hey everyone, this is Laura, editor of Misinfo Weekly. Before we get into the show, we wanted to provide a content warning. This episode contains a brief mention of suicide. We will include the timestamp of this section, as well as resources to get help in the show notes. Please take care of yourselves, and thanks for listening. This is Misinfo Weekly, a somewhat weekly program about misinformation in our time. Misinfo Weekly is made by the Unit for Data Science and Analytics at Arizona State University Library. This week, we'll be talking about the anti-vaxxer movement for animals. Now, people know that this podcast is a friend of animals. Not only do we have our assistant producer, Justice the Dog, um, make interventions from time to time, but also we are fans of the show Paw Patrol, or at least fans of studying the social media impact of the show Paw Patrol. But to talk about the anti-vaxxer movement and animals, we have a veterinarian with us, Dr. Kelsey Bradley. Dr. Bradley, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much. And so what we'll do today is talk through this kind of peculiar world of anti-vaxxers for pets and animals that I think a lot of folks might not necessarily be keen to or track that much. Uh, But we want to get into it and then think through what we can learn from it overall when we're thinking about misinformation uh, in our time and how to how to be better about sorting through misinformation and trying to figure out what it all means. So, Sean, you're pretty familiar with the anti-vaxxer movement in humans. Could you say a little bit about anti-vaxxers and where that all kind of came from? So a lot of our discussions around anti-vaxxers have occurred around the pandemic series of videos, the, the second of which recently came out a few weeks ago. And in those videos, there's a claim that the vaccinations, the ways that vaccinations are created that that actually makes us more susceptible to the coronavirus or COVID-19. Yeah, and this is this this smacks of some earlier stuff, right? I, I feel like people have always been suspicious of vaccines for as long as vaccines have been around. But there have been a couple landmark moments in anti-vaccine. Is that right? Uh, yes, and you're going to ask me to list them, and I can't, so... No, that's okay. I, I'm, I'm looking at, I, I think the one that, that sticks out that I know about was the Andrew Wakefield 1998 piece that I think that linked the MMR vaccine to autism. And this was a kind of locus classicus for anti-vaxxers and that these vaccines would actually uh, interfere with the development of your children. And this is the sort of famous Lancet paper that was retracted, correct? Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. I, I had forgotten that it was published in the Lancet. The Lancet is becoming really, really popular now with uh, it's publishing a ton of COVID-19 articles. I did not appreciate that that was actually published in the Lancet. They probably don't want that publicized so much now. Yes. So that was a retracted article. And then anti-vaxxing since that time uh, kind of picked up steam with celebrities. What else can you say about kind of anti-vaxxing over the last 20 years? Well, in the Lancet article, in this link of vaccines to autism, just even though the paper has been retracted, this theory just refuses to go away. It continues to recirculate. And we see that theory kind of recirculated and twisted around with COVID-19 and the pandemic videos too. And there's also around some religious communities, you know, we've seen outbreaks of measles and such, say at at Disneyland, for example, because of uh, children that weren't vaccinated visiting Disneyland. So in general, the anti-vaxxer community uses a lot of the same techniques that we've discussed in the past uh, around the circulation of misinformation, around uh, 
presenting some pseudoscience, presenting anecdotal evidence and discarding actual scientific evidence, and then also continuing to circulate sort of previous scientific information that's now been corrected or updated and using that as a, a basis to say, well, vaccination is problematic because see, they were wrong with this Lancet study. And so that means we shouldn't trust them. So in some ways, it's kind of playing both sides of it. We trust the scientists, we trust one scientist and them being uh, retracted or, uh, or disgraced. It's actually evidence of their credibility, but we don't want to trust some of the other science. And we use this idea of you know, retraction or whenever we have new science that comes out that goes against some previous information, we then use that not to say, well, that information was incorrect and we have updated science. We use that information to then make the case that, well, that information they just want to hide. They, that information was actually correct, but it's sort of too costly to pharmaceutical companies or the truth. They don't want that to be out there. So that was retracted, not because the science has been updated and the, and the science was wrong at that moment in time, but because it's a conspiracy to hide the actual truth to the public. Right, right. So it's not just about the science. And I feel like if this were pandemic, there would be some ominous background right now as we were talking with like clouds and lightning. Or, or crowds rioting in a city for no reason. Probably some footage of uh, the police coming in. <laughs> Probably some stock footage, yes. yes. Passed off as actual footage. Uh, but let's, let, let's talk about animals and anti-vaxxing. And so, Sean, you first kind of raised this issue a little while back. What was your first experience or what, what was one of your kind of early experiences with animals and anti-vaxxing? So I ran into this community because uh, justice our sort of popular... His official position is assistant producer. Yes. And uh, so basically he barks whenever we talk about misinformation. So Justice happens to be what's known as a double Merrill Aussie. So that means that he was born deaf and blind due to the, the breeding of two Merrill parents. Um, and with the way they do this is because they want to create certain colors of Australian shepherds, um, also collies and some other breeds have uh, similar genetic issues, and they shouldn't breed these parents together. And these two recessive genes, so if a puppy gets the two recessive genes, then they have a, a, a high likelihood of ending up either deaf or blind, and Justice won the lottery. So he's both deaf and blind from birth because of this genetic defect and the poor breeding that happened. And like any good dog dad, after adopting Justice, I joined a whole bunch of Facebook groups that are related to Australian shepherds and double merrill dogs. And in learning about justice and uh, the double merrill gene and other things, trying to figure out to know what's safe. Is there, are there things that I, sh treatments that justice shouldn't have? Are there vaccinations that justice shouldn't have? And those kinds of things. So in these communities, there are some folks that they bring out this argument that, you know, these dogs are very susceptible to chemicals. So you shouldn't put any chemicals in their bodies. So they can't be vaccinated for rabies. They can't have heartworm medication because that might harm them. They can't take flea medication because that also might harm them. And so this is, was my first entry into the, the dog anti-vax community, which I was surprised was very similar to some of the arguments. They're not exactly the same, but some of the arguments that are used in the human anti-vaxxer community. Oh, okay. So, and this is an interesting question because it, it's one of those things where I don't know if people who are anti-vaxxers for animals actually go to the doctor. But Dr. Bradley, do you encounter 
people at your hospital who are anti-vaxxers for their pets? Or do you think they tend to lay low and you might not ever see them? I think that in general, anti-vaxxers for animals and specifically companion animals are not as prevalent as anti-vaxxers for humans. And I don't know the relationship between people who are anti-vaxxers for let's say their own children or themselves and if they feel the same way about their pets or flipping it the other way around are people who feel very strongly about their pets not being vaccinated or it causing negative effects in their pets i don't know if they feel the same way about their children so i i think there it is a it would be a good thing to try and figure out the reason why people are either anti-vaxxers versus humans versus pets. So what you're saying is we shouldn't just assume that just because someone is an anti-vaxxer for their pet, that they are an anti-vaxxer for themselves? Correct. And the reason why I say this is because many of the people that I have had as clients who want to have a discussion about vaccines and is it safe for their pet or, you know, we go down this road of talking about vaccines and what is needed, I don't think that there's the same level of distrust with medicine as I feel there is with human anti-vaxxers. So that's very interesting because a lot of times in our in some of our conversations about what drives anti-vaxxing or what drives medical conspiracies, there's a certain distrust of medical institutions. But if I'm hearing you right, that people don't view medical institutions for people in the same way that they view medical institutions for animals. They don't just see them all as the same thing necessarily. Yeah, I I think that there is a general trust with the public towards veterinarians. Many of the discussions that I've had with clients, they come with an open mind and, and they genuinely have questions about if this will harm their pet or not. I think a lot of the people who decide not to vaccinate their pet, it is for a reason other than distrust in the vaccine. So what would be some other reasons that someone would, would think that way? I would say a lot, of, a lot of it comes down to their pet's interaction with other animals or other people. For example, this is mainly true in cats. Many people who have cats are, you know, their cats are inside all of the time. They aren't boarded or groomed or anything. I still think that there's a benefit to vaccinating them against certain diseases, but they may not feel the same way. In some ways, there are a host of sort of potentially kind of complicated reasons why someone might come to you and say, well, wait, do I really need to vaccinate my, you know, my cat or my dog? Because they're not worried about their dog or cat getting autism necessarily from the vaccine, right? That's true. I would say most of the time when people are asking about vaccines, they are coming to the conversation with finances on their mind. So it seems like there's, in some ways, two halves of the pet anti-vaxxer world. And I I hesitate to even label them as the same. But it sounds like there's some base level skepticism of vaccines sometimes expressed by clients who are trying to do the best thing for their dog or cat. And then it seems like there's some other stuff going on out there 
where they might not ever come in to see the vet at all. I would say that's true. And I, I think that to your point just a minute ago, Sean, I have had conversations with people about vaccines in animals causing autism. It is not extremely common, but it is interesting to note that the study that vaccines cause autism that was debunked that you guys mentioned at the beginning of this episode does sometimes spill over into the pet world, which is interesting because autism is not a disease that we recognize in dogs. Yeah. And we have, you know, just looking through a couple different uh, Facebook communities without uh, calling them out by name, it's not uncommon to see hundreds of thousands, if not a million likes or followers uh, for this kind of content. And sometimes it's, it, it seems like it comes in a couple different forms. One is in the form of, uh, you know, like naturalistic or just kind of branding as being very naturalistic. And some of it is, is a little bit more antagonistic towards, towards tradition, what, what I could call or what I'm calling, I don't know if it's right, traditional or more conventional animal medicine or science-based animal medicine. Maybe less homeopathic. Western. Western. Okay, yeah. Let me read a couple things to you, Dr. Bradley, and see what your response is. This is, this is from a very popular uh, website. Well, I'd, I'd like to say one other thing, actually. Um, talking about vaccines, I, I think generally the population of pet owners do go with the recommendation of their veterinarian. And there certainly are discussions about lifestyle and risk because not every vaccine is recommended for every pet. For example, we're in the Southwest of the United States and we do not see a lot of Lyme disease. And so it is not something that I would recommend vaccinating dogs against Lyme disease here. However, if I have a client who is going to be moving or traveling to the northeastern part of the country where this is an endemic disease, that is something that I would have a conversation with them about and say, hey, your lifestyle and your risk is changing. This is a vaccine that we should consider. And I think in the majority of cases, when you have conversations about the risk and about why a vaccine is important. In general, pet owners do believe in that and trust that you are making the correct medical recommendations for their pet and they will elect to proceed with those vaccines. Um, so I think back to your point, Michael, about kind of separating two different camps um, of pet owners. I think that there certainly are a group of people who are questioning just for the health of their dog and and maybe even putting them into the camp of, you know, do I need to spend this money for all of these vaccines or not? Um, and then you have another group of people who have maybe done research like you, Sean, or are part of different Facebook groups or rescues or, you know, a little bit more involved with the pet ownership community. And I think that is where a lot of times there are a lot more opinions out there and a lot more strongly opinionated people. So could you talk a little bit about the purpose of vaccines and maybe give us some examples of vaccines that might be required or 
and some vaccines that may be optional. And what does that mean when a vaccine is optional? Yeah, that's a, a really good question to kind of set the, the basis for vaccines. I think it would be beneficial to talk about dogs only just to have a, uh, an easier understanding. In dogs, typically you have core vaccines and then vaccines that are considered lifestyle. So for example, rabies is a core vaccine. It is legally required in most, if not all, states and counties. But one point to that is the laws do change depending on where you live. So, for example, just talking about cats for one second, in some places, rabies is required for cats as well. Here in Maricopa County, it is not legally required to vaccinate your cat for rabies. So all the dogs listening to this podcast are super jealous of the cats. <laughs> that might be, might be one way to put it. Here, here in Maricopa County, core vaccines that I recommend for every single dog, no matter their lifestyle, would be rabies, which is legally required, and also distemper parvo combination vaccine. And the reason why these are core vaccines is because the, they protect patients against really serious disease processes. And another, another point that I should make about veterinary medicine is it's not only about the health and welfare of our patients, but it's also looking at public health. So we have a duty to humans and public health as well. And so rabies is, is one of those things. It, it is a very serious disease for any animal, but rabies is oftentimes legally required because of the public health impact that it can have if many of our pets are not vaccinated against rabies and it could spread to humans. So this sounds like a really great breeding ground for misinformation, actually, because the decision making around vaccinating your animal, if you have an animal, isn't necessarily straightforward, that it may vary from state to state or from region to region, and that some of these are optional, some of them are not. And then you're dealing in some other factors like uh, the actual industry of veterinary medicine that people may have one orientation to or not. And this is something that we're going to see in some of the Facebook posts and articles that we'll talk about a little later. But it sounds like a tricky decision to make where you don't always have the best information and not always know where the best information is, because I think sometimes people and, you know, this shows up in the material we'll talk about. They assume that veterinary medicine has a motive to make money and that that motive supersedes the motive to care and for public health. And it, so it seems like put those factors together and you actually have a really interesting opportunity for misinformation. I mean, Michael, do we really have any problems? We have Google and then we have WebMD for pets. I mean, that's <laughs> why do we need veterinarians, right? It's Dr. Google, actually. <laughs> that's Dr. Google to you. OK, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, there's there's all kinds of opportunities here to because when anyone gets an animal, the there isn't just a really straightforward guide for how to take care of them. I mean, one exists, but people don't always have access to that. And that's oftentimes mediated by different institutions that they may or may not trust or or know where to look. And so I think I think it's important to talk about those core vaccines that are 
very serious for the pet and possibly their owners as well. And then, Sean, like you were saying, there are certain vaccines that may not be recommended for every patient. And so uh, the easiest one to talk about would be Bordetella, which is against the bacteria Bordetella, which is one of the organisms that can cause kennel cough in dogs. For dogs who truly are not in contact with any other dogs, don't leave the house. They are not boarded or groomed or anything like that. They don't go to dog parks. Their lifestyle does not have a lot of risk of them contracting kennel cough. And so maybe for that specific dog, that's not a vaccine that they need. And that is not a a health risk to their owners if they are not vaccinated against it. Because like going back to rabies, for example, if a dog does not have its rabies vaccination and say it bites someone or is picked up by the county or animal services, then that can have some pretty poor outcomes for the animal. That That is correct. And I think the other important thing to know about this is it's not only about the behavior of your dog. You may have the sweetest dog out there. And this is a conversation that comes up more commonly than others is my dog is really nice. He would never bite anyone, uh-huh. which may be true. But the other side of it is What if a wild animal or even another dog, for that matter, attacks your dog and you do not know the rabies status of that animal? So it seems like this is a typical human move. You know, the animal world in terms of socialization and behavior and care is complex. But humans tend to assume that animals are simple, but Animals are complicated. Their lives are complicated. The situations they're in are are complicated and oftentimes unpredictable, just like people. Sure. I I think that there are many different things that go into decision-making around vaccines and, and lifestyle as well. Well, boy, have I got some material for you then. Oh, no. (laughs) I would like to read some material and get your Sean... And Dr. Bradley, I'd like to get your responses to this. Perfect. And Sean, you're going to see some echoes of some other material that we've spoken about in the past. I'm confident of it. But here we go. Our dogs are in the midst of an epidemic. It's not an epidemic of viral disease, but of chronic ill health. They are besieged with itchy, pus-laden, scabby skin, Vomit and diarrhea are the norm. One in every hundred dogs suffers from epilepsy, and an even higher number lives with painful arthritis. Allergies are also reaching epidemic proportions. Dogs are becoming allergic to life. Now that is the first paragraph in a 20-paragraph essay. Dr. Bradley, Sean, your thoughts? So I I think that there's a lot to unpack from that, even just that one paragraph. I mean, all of the medical issues that they talked about in that paragraph are things that I see. It is not uncommon to see animals that are vomiting or having diarrhea, have epilepsy, arthritis, allergies. All of those are things that we see on on at least a, a weekly basis, depending on where you are. And I think it's important to look at where veterinary medicine has been in the last few decades 
and also looking at the human animal bond that has developed in that same time period, it's important to note that animals are now more than ever part of the family. And because of that, it is more common for these pets to come to a veterinarian for issues that maybe would not have been recognized previously in, say, a dog that lives its whole life outdoors. Another point to that is with improved medical care, not only going to the veterinarian more often, but also with the advances in medicine, it is common for dogs and cats to be living longer. And so it's not unreasonable to think that more of these animals are having arthritis or, you know, we're seeing more diseases being diagnosed because they're coming to the veterinarian more. And so in some ways, it's as an effect of the advance of veterinary medicine and humans coming into closer proximity, we're seeing some of these things more, both because of increased attention and longer lifespan, but then those are being used as evidence that the veterinary medicine is actually not trustworthy at all. Right. And I I think it's important to just say that those things aren't necessarily cause and effect. Sean, do you see, do you recognize some of these beats? So I recognize a lot of these, these same tactics. There was a, a ER doctor in New York who penned a lengthy response to the pandemic videos, not a positive response, a, you know, this, a, response, a scientifically accurate response to pandemic and was trying to punch holes in, in the arguments. And my favorite sentence in the response was, the plural of anecdote is not data. And I think as you were saying, I think that there are examples of dogs that may have experienced all of these health issues, but just because one dog has a reaction or one dog has a health issue, that doesn't mean it's related to a vaccine. That also doesn't mean that that entire cluster is what every dog is going to experience. It's you know these few outlier experiences that have this sort of fear appeal, especially to dog owners of I have this, you know, my dog received a vaccine, then 24 hours later, my dog passed away. And then everyone is, you know, that's responding to that is like, oh, we just need to, you know, this vaccine caused it when, you know, it could have been completely unrelated to the vaccine or someone leaves out the dog wasn't even receiving a vaccine at the time and just passed away for other reasons. But we've sort of created the story of anecdotes that we've joined together that actually aren't related. And I think that's a really good point. You know, it it kind of reminds me of the people who are more of the anti-vaxxer pet owners, I think a lot of the evidence or so-called evidence that they have or data that they share with others, I think that in general, their heart is in a good place and they truly do want what is best for animals and are trying to share that information with others. And I think in some situations, they may extrapolate from a case or two or take a one-off situation and apply that to all animals. Um, Or they may exaggerate certain things that may be true. And so one, one example of that is going back to talking about justice and, and you mentioned one thing about, you know, certain heartworm preventions being toxic or, um, you know, not giving them that because it's poison and knowing more information, which the general public typically does not have, one of the ingredients in a popular heartworm preventive can cause really serious side effects in 
dogs who have the MDR1 gene mutation. Those dogs oftentimes are collies or Australian shepherds. When you first said that, I thought to myself, you know, actually that comes from some version of true information, but it's saying it's generalizing that to many more dogs than it's true for. And the other part of that is the amount in heartworm preventives does not affect that gene anyway. And this is uh, ivermectin, is that correct? Correct. So for example, for me, that was scary the first time I went to my regular vet and we were talking about heartworm and I was just like, wait, 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 he's a double marrow. I don't, he might have the MDR1 gene, like we can't do this. And the vet's like, "That's don't worry, we have alternatives. And just having that conversation with the vet and being open, then I started to understand this wasn't as scary as it at first seemed or as some of the um, the others in the, in the double marrow dog community had described as that it was, you know, any heartworm preventative was a death sentence. And I was a bit terrified. But then after talking to my vet, I realized, oh, now we, we understand with more information, we can handle this. And it's, it's actually not that big of a deal. What sticks with me at the end of this paragraph is the idea that dogs are allergic to life, which reminds me of some, some themes in anti-vaxxer rhetoric and misinformation and some themes in some of the most recent stuff around COVID-19, which is medicine gets in the way of nature. And so therefore, because your connection to nature is severed, then you're just going to get sicker as a natural consequence. It feels like they're drawing from the, the kind of anti-vaxxer rhetoric and just dumping it right into the context of animals. So it's kind of coming from the same well in a way, but instead of being directed at children, it's being directed at our pets that if you know, Western medicine in general prevents a dog's immune system from developing. So then they'll end up being sicker than they would if we wouldn't have engaged with these vaccines or these different types of Western medicine. So I want to add another quote, if I could, uh, from a, one of the multiple Facebook pet groups. And someone posted a, an article from a sort of dog viral content site where they sort of post a cute articles about dogs or bombastic articles about dogs. The headline for the article is dog dies minutes after receiving vaccine at vet, devastated owner seeking answers. And one of the responses, uh, comments was a friend of mine's dog that was perfectly fine was given a flu shot in quotes because the groomer said the dog needed a flu shot before he could groom him. And he died a couple of days after. Never heard that dogs needed a flu shot. It was awful. These vaccines now are filled with so much toxins. Beware. So I see this mention of, of vaccinations or sort of flu shots or other things and that they're just filled with toxins. So therefore, they're more dangerous than the diseases that they prevent. So if we weigh that against, for example, say with rabies, as with any medical procedure, human or animal, there's a risk of complications or potentially side effects, for example. But if we weigh the risk of a dog receiving rabies and the impact of rabies versus the very small percentage possibility of having adverse side effects of the rabies vaccine, how, how do you talk to, can I say pet parents uh, or clients about that? Sure. Yeah. Clients, pet parents, they're, they're one and the same, but yeah. And, and that's exactly the conversation that I do have with people is, you know, there is a risk here. It is very unlikely that we will see any of these side effects. These are the things that you should look out for. And if you see any of these signs, you should go to an emergency hospital right away. 
the question about ingredients in vaccines being detrimental in cats, we do know that there are certain vaccines that were created previously that had an adjuvant, which is the vehicle that the vaccines are delivered in, that caused a bigger reaction when given to a certain percentage of cats. And in those, it would create a a vaccine-associated sarcoma, which is a type of cancer. And so, you know, historically, that is a risk. And because of the knowledge of that, vaccines have changed changed, and the adjuvant has changed as well. And that risk is is really, really low. So in some cases, as the vaccines have improved, it's hard to get away from some of the baggage of some of the adverse side effects that may have happened in the past. Sure. And and I think now more than ever, the term herd immunity is is becoming more well known. And that's certainly true in the pet world as well. Not every pet can be vaccinated. There are certain animals that have diseases that make it unsafe for them to be vaccinated. But if the majority of the population is vaccinated, then the few who cannot be vaccinated are still protected. Let's go back to some other material here, because outside of the individual risks of vaccination, it seems like there's more water in the well when it comes to some of this misinformation around pet health and pet vaccine. I'll read some more. I'm, I'm, I'm back on Facebook now, and here's some more material. How long will a dog live? Probably not as long as you're hoping. Banfield Pet Hospitals report the average lifespan of a 20 to 90 pound dog is just over 10.8 years. That's not very long. Look, if your dog is suffering from allergies, diarrhea, joint pain, or diabetes, it's not your fault. It's because your vet has been taught that drugs and chemicals are the path to good health. He believes this because his education is sponsored and taught by the people who sell pet foods and drugs. Don't let your dog be a victim of greed. It's time to take back control of your dog's care. It's time to return him to natural health. I think it's pretty remarkable that there is a a distinctly masculinist, populist, anti-authority message here. Just talking about animals. So, right. And dogs do not, the dogs do not escape whatever uh, compound of like populism, resentment, anti science is kicking around the internet. This seems to me to be a manifestation of some of the same stuff. And I've seen this uh, in other areas too, similar to like when people are discussing dog food, people are discussing, you know, going to different vets you know, corporate versus holistic vets or or those kinds of things. I've seen um, a lot of those arguments. And I guess we could also say, I guess dogs inherit the uh, political beliefs of their pet parents too, maybe in a way. Um, So folks are kind of pushing those issues onto their animals um, as a way to continue to deliver that in, you know, wider and wider communities. Yeah. And there's this idea that, you know, all dogs are male, all clients are male and all veterinarians are male. And then there's this appeal to a natural strength that your animal ought to have instead and that they're being sickened by, you know, like we talked about with Plandemic and the America's Top Doctors video, that medicine is just too complicated and it's getting in the way. 
if we just took our dogs to the beach and they were allowed to the natural essence of the ocean and the sand, then they wouldn't need vaccines. Is that correct? Kind of like in pandemic. What do you, Dr. Bradley, what do you think of this idea that nature is good for your dog and that medicine is what's actually making it sicker? I think that probably the people touting this belief have not seen a dog with parvovirus. Could you say a little bit more about that? Parvovirus is a, an infection that goes to the intestines of infected dogs, and it is typically seen in puppies because their immune system is not robust enough to fight off the infection. It causes vomiting, diarrhea, dehydration. These dogs get really sick and become septic and die, even with aggressive treatment. The thing about parvovirus is in dogs that are fully vaccinated, it is extremely rare to contract this disease. The main, the main thing I took from what you just read is about how greedy veterinarians are. And that is the most disheartening thing about certain opinions about this movement and about us being as a whole, the veterinary field being bought by companies is you will be hard, hard pressed to find a veterinarian who their biggest goal is making money or supporting one brand or one vaccine. I want your dog to be vaccinated and I want you to spend $100 or $200 for that to happen to protect them. If your dog gets parvovirus, the treatment will be in the thousands. If we were truly in it for the money, that would be a better case. Parvovirus seems especially important for this idea that nature will make you healthier too because of the way that you actually, that, that, that a dog will actually get parvovirus. So parvovirus is, is fecal oral transmission. What that means is that an infected dog will pass parvovirus in its feces and another dog who comes around and sniffs or licks this feces, feces or even is licking around or sniffing in the dirt years after this parvovirus is laid into the ground, they then become infected. So the idea of actually sending your puppy outside could literally make them sicker just by their contact with the outside because the outside is laced through with virus particles? I'm just having a sad parvo dog moment in silence. Sorry. Uh, as I, I volunteer at the shelter, a local shelter, and you know we see puppies with distemper. We see dogs with heartworm, with advanced heartworm that sometimes we're unable to treat. And when we can treat it, it isn't a really fun process for the dog. It's very lengthy. So I think of the fact that you know heartworm preventatives. Uh, you know, regular interaction with a veterinarian and uh, these vaccines are ways to prevent a lot of pain and cruelty that happens to animals that don't receive that care. So for me, I see a vet as a veterinarian as uh, an advocate for me and my my animal. Um, so I find it kind of confusing whenever folks are saying that a veterinarian is trying to you know push these services. And I think your point that well, actually, if I wanted to make money, a vaccination is actually much cheaper than the treatment of some of these illnesses. I think that's a, a point that a lot of folks that are reading this sometimes online and being like, oh, my vet bill was so expensive. They don't realize that you're actually saving them money by 
these vaccinations rather than trying to, you know, wait and if something happens and then that treatment would be much more expensive. If you're going after veterinarians as being profiteering off your animal's health, then it kind of fundamentally misunderstands why most veterinarians go into med- veterinary medicine in the first place. Like, I, I don't think if we had focus groups or broad surveys and asked veterinarians why take on, you know, so many years of schooling and so much student debt like like physicians and then go into practice, they would say it's part of my scheme to overcharge customers and make as much money as possible. There are uh, paths of of less resistance to just make a bunch of money other than victimize your dog. And and one thing I'll add on to that, just as a little plug and and a little off topic, part of this thought process that vets are in it for the money and we don't care for the animals is is really detrimental on the profession as a whole and compassion fatigue, which is becoming more well known in recent years, but I think still not something that the general public realizes is suicide in the veterinary profession is higher than other professions. And a lot of it has to do with what you were just talking about, Michael, the the guilt placed on veterinarians and veterinary staff by pet owners saying that we're just in it for the money when oftentimes the amount of debt that they have is very high. So in some ways, you get the worst of both worlds. You get a ton of self-sacrifice, a ton of effort put in, and and also a ton of distrust, or not a ton, but oftentimes distrust or misunderstanding of, of the industry. And at the same time, being exposed to, on a day-to-day basis, an awful lot of suffering on the part of animals. Right. Not to mention the urine and poop and other kinds of things that you probably uh, experience on a more than daily basis. <laughs> Don't forget about anal glands. Uh, how could one ever? Yes, we can't. How do you ever get that smell out? That's probably a different podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's um let's take not too hard of a turn, but I, I would like to I would like to go through rapid fire just a handful of cures put out there by some anti-vaxxer pet groups, and then Dr. Bradley get your kind of rapid fire reaction. So I'm are ready. are you ready? Okay. Yeah. So. A raw Baltic amber necklace for the treatment of uh, fleas. I can't say that I even know what a raw Baltic amber necklace is, but I I don't think that would work. Slippery elm as a general cure-all. If there's a product out there claiming it can cure many ailments, it probably doesn't cure any. Coconut oil would be in that camp. All right. Berry powder. Never heard of it. Yogurt. I mean, yogurt has some some uh, probiotic properties in there. All right. There's one that I also want to look at for, for a second. I feel like with the amber, I was thinking, welcome to Jurassic Park. You know, like uh, <laughs> with the amber necklace has. Or if you've ever been to Russia, there's a, in the Hermitage, there's an amber, a room where the walls are made of pure amber, like inches thick, like basically pieces of amber slate. It's kind of crazy. I bet there aren't any fleas in there. I guess not. I mean, that would be an interesting test. I wonder what about amber causes fleas to want to go away. I'm, 
I mean, I would buy a rare amber necklace if it kept the scorpions away. Or right now the crickets and sewer cockroaches, but that's a different conversation. Yeah, that's just that's just garden variety summer in Arizona. Um, what about what about a raw diet? Or let me specify: is a raw diet a substitute for a vaccine? What do you, what do you think about the idea of a raw diet and an organic diet being a substitute for vaccination? I actually have not heard of that before. There are plenty of people who do recommend or have their own pets on raw diets for a variety of reasons. Raw diets have the same risks to dogs as it does people. There is still the risk of things like salmonella and not only to the pet, but, you know, to the pet owners. Many people like getting kisses from their dog. And if your dog just got done eating raw food, they can probably transmit something to you. Like yum. Oatmeal bats. So oatmeal baths can be beneficial in hydrating skin. Sounds but you couldn't use an oatmeal bath, say, in lieu of a rabies vaccination. Oh, no. What about liver tonic? <laughs> Are you reading like a snake oil salesman from the 1920s or something? No, no. I'm just reading Facebook posts off a kind of natural anti-vax uh, pet. Like pet Dr. Magic's magic liver tonic? And I feel like there's a double standard, right? I, do we, should I give the name of this magazine that I'm reading some of these remedies off of? Because we mentioned the name of Plandemic and some of these other places. Should I mention the name of this place? Nah, no. I feel like in, unless it's a magazine, like Plandemic, a lot of people have heard of Plandemic. So referring to it doesn't necessarily force people because, you know, so nothing on liver tonic because you've never heard of liver tonic in the context of your education as a as a doctor of veterinary medicine. I have not. I mean, what about liver tonic of a specific animal at all? Would that help? No, no. I th I think this is actually a product called liver tonic. It is a it is like a tonic water that you give your dog to help their liver. Oh, I would be interested in learning what the ingredients are in there. There are certainly products out there that I recommend and a lot of them are supplements actually that can help with liver health so i i will remain undecided on that it, it sounds like there's a good there's a mixture here of stuff that sounds completely unfounded or unproven some stuff that smacks of potentially helpful stuff and then some other things like a baltic amber necklace that just feel completely wild yes so what do we make of all of this about there being a robot? Like at The Guardian in 2019 had a really interesting article about anti-vaccination in pets um, where they interviewed veterinarians and they described it as a, as a serious risk for the animals because the, the animal's health is put into jeopardy because of the human, human belief systems. The, the Guardian kind of framed this as of a piece with the rise of some kind of global anti-establishment politics that included medicine and other kinds of medical institutions as things to be under assault and as things to mistrust. When we think about the presence of pet anti-vaccination and these kinds of thoughts, where, where do you think the connection is, Sean, with some of the things that we've been talking about with this podcast? Why is it important for people out there if they don't own a dog or a cat um, or any other kind of companion animal? Why is it important to think through anti-vaccination movements or anti-vaccination ideologies? Why is it still important to pay attention to this for an hour-long podcast, for instance? 
besides the interest of the topic, um, just being sort of curious. But I think the reason why we're discussing it this week is because there are similar techniques. So oftentimes we spend the, a podcast breaking down what are the techniques, how do we, how do these campaigns create openings for mis and disinformation? How do they bring people in and then lock people into the a conspiracy theory or a misinformation or a rumor? So in many cases, looking at the animal anti-vaxxer communities, they're using these same techniques that are used around COVID-19 and folks that are saying masks are ineffective or people that deny that COVID-19 exists or like QAnon in some of those theories. It's the same repertoire of techniques that just played out in a different community. So for example, in this case, we can see there's generalization, there's a use of anecdotes or stitching together different anecdotes into one story that sounds really compelling or is very emotional. This thing, I did this, I gave this vaccination to my dog, then they died the next day. So vaccinations must be bad in general. And so that's a similar technique that is used in other places. And and if I may interject as a person who is not an expert in misinformation, I think another part of this is kind of a confusion of who is trustworthy and what information is trustworthy. Because in many situations, when these conversations start, the initial thoughts of a client about vaccines for their animal come from a person who is trustworthy, whether it be a friend or a breeder who they got their beloved pet from or someone else. They're getting this information as you say, that causes, you know, a lot of emotion to come up and they trust that information and then hearing other information from a different source can be confusing. So as you said, in many cases, we're receiving this information from a trusted friend, a trusted colleague, someone who has animals or a breeder. And how does someone take that information? And then how might you recommend that someone evaluates that information to figure out is that true? Does that apply to my pet? What sorts of sources besides uh, their veterinarian, which I would imagine would be one of the best sources, what other sources besides a veterinarian could someone use to try to determine whether that information is legitimate? Well, you, you certainly took my, my first recommendation, which is speak to your veterinarian about it. And you, and you can, I, I love when people come to me with questions or concerns about something and really talk through what their concerns are and why that may or may not be true. I think other resources that are good, especially for vaccines, would be associations or groups who have a history of researching or having different studies about those specific questions, so in this case, vaccines, and looking to them for resources. And so in, in particular for vaccines, AHA, they come out with vaccine guidelines and why you should vaccinate your pet for these specific diseases, depending on lifestyle and risk. What about sources like, you know, there's a WebMD for pets. Uh, what do you think of those sources? And do you have any tips for maybe pet owners whenever they're going through those uh, types of sites? I mean, I think my default answer to these questions of going through different resources and trying to determine what is acceptable or what is true or not would be talking to your veterinarian about that. I think one 
one thing I think that we can ignore about an opportunity for misinformation, and that's of a piece of some of the things that we've been talking about, is the, the gender ratio of veterinary medicine. And that is, you know, we're looking at, you know, by some estimates, what, 65%, maybe more of the veterinary workforce is, is, is women, and it tends to skew young. That is, the women have a younger average age than the men who practice veterinary medicine. So uh, when you look at it on average, that the veterinary technicians, the receptionists, the doctors are going to are more likely to be women. And when we talk about the source of some of these ideologies about mistrusting institutions and trying to go with more naturalistic ways of of thinking about medicine and treatment, then you start to think that, you know, a lot of the there's some baked in misogyny here that is going to come into contact with a predominantly female field. And that is also going to be a contributing factor to the way that sometimes, uh, depending on who you're talking to, they may view the, the actual expert as being less of an expert. And their male friend on Facebook and what they experienced about their dog might actually be a better source of information. I think that's an interesting point. And as far as, as women in the field, you're absolutely correct that the majority of veterinarians and veterinary technicians and and staff are women and it is becoming more of a female dominated profession as the years go on in addition to that women are primarily the ones in in small animal hospitals so so that is to say that i think more males go into working with large animal than women do, although certainly both do. And I don't think that it's necessarily a decision made by clients, but it has certainly been seen by myself and other female colleagues where a female doctor in a practice will talk to a client about certain recommendations. Then a male colleague will say the same thing and maybe have different responses. I feel like thinking through all of this, some of this goes back to the idea that we expect the animal world and the human world to be two different things. And we expect animals' lives to be more simple or medicine for animals to somehow, you know, human beings get to be more expert than the actual professionals with animal medicine. I, what I'm getting at is we normally don't think about animal medicine as being political, but it is clearly influenced by politics. And one thing that I take away from this conversation is that we tend to think about misinformation, at least at first blush, as being something that's about politics. But misinformation, just like all kinds of political things, seep down into all aspects of life for not just people, but animals too. Well, and I think that if we think about the misinformation in this context, a lot of this originates not from a political stance, uh, a place of uh, animosity towards the other side. A lot of this originates from a care that people have of their animals and also a fear that if they choose the wrong treatment plan, that they're going to cause have some sort of detrimental effect to their animal. And then so reading, to, reading these stories that folks will find online about, well, this information is correct, this information isn't correct, but none of those um, contributors, like in a, you know, a Facebook group, are veterinarians then you end up, everything kind of goes off the rails because everyone's feeding into their fear of 
well, don't do that because it'll hurt your animal. So don't do that because it'll hurt your animal. And then we're left at this vaccines are toxic and are going to kill your animal rather than they're actually really safe with low side effects. So in some ways, you know, we're not seeing people say, put an amber necklace around your dog, hashtag Q sent me. Instead, what we see are people who really want, they want their animals to have a good life, but that combination of care plus maybe a little bit of ignorance plus some skepticism about certain institutions, those things add up to a lot of misinformation around animals. A great way to sum up what I just said, yes. All right, so any kind of final thoughts as we round out this conversation? I guess I would like to say, I think in general, many clients and pet owners out there, exactly like you said, they want the best for their pet and want to do everything that they can to keep them as healthy as possible for as long as possible. And I think that in general, people do trust their veterinarians and come to them with questions and an open mind. And I think in this day of, you know, the internet and, you know, anyone being able to publish whatever they want, it can make it confusing to navigate through all of that information. And I think that's where wires get crossed. I don't think that it's from people, you know, trying to do something that isn't what's best for their pet. So in some ways, this is kind of a, a trickle down. There's there are certain effects of actively political misinformation campaigns like pandemic that just end up trickling down into other kinds of spheres to the point where some of the people influenced by this stuff or some of the core ideas aren't thinking malevolently necessarily, but they are affected by it indirectly or indirectly. Just they don't consider themselves soldiers of a particular cause directly linked up to, to kind of explicit political forces. Dr. Bradley, thanks so much for joining us today. I think this was an amazing opportunity to discuss misinformation in a different context and also see some techniques in a potentially less political environment where a lot of this misinformation actually comes from a fairly loving place where people want their animals to have happy and healthy lives. But in that search, there's a lot of confusing information that comes out that can be difficult to sort out or can be very emotionally challenging for pet owners to hear sad stories and then be concerned, if I do the same thing, it's going to happen to my pet. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And, and it's been really fun to think about this in terms of veterinary medicine. It's not something that I typically think about on a day-to-day -day basis. So thanks for having me. For questions or comments, use the email address datascience at asu.edu. And to check out more about what we're doing, try library.asu.edu slash data.